Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Since its inception, evolutionary theory has remained controversial for many. Although one might think only uneducated lay people find the idea unpalatable, quite a sizable minority of scientists, too, struggle to come to terms with Darwinism. In today's episode, Will Barlow explores a number of major scientific objections to evolution, including the Cambrian explosion, mutations as an insufficient mechanism, irreducible complexity, and the fossil record itself. Additionally, he'll briefly explore the issue of abiogenesis, the presumed starting point for any evolutionary development. Here now is episode 471, part 11 of our Science and Scripture class, Scientific Objections to Evolution with Will Barlow. Welcome back to Scripture and Science. We're in session 11 now. Last session, we talked about Genesis 1 and evolution. And at the end of it, we, I mentioned briefly that I do not hold to the theory of evolution. I believe in the special creation of, of humanity. Of, I believe in a literal Adam and Eve. Some of that is scriptural for sure. But a large part of why I reject evolution actually will come in this section on scientific objections to evolution. So when I look at the evidence for evolution scientifically, I see more holes in it than I do in things like Big Bang cosmology and, and stuff like that. And maybe that's wrong of me. Maybe I should view it similarly. I don't know. But that's where I am. And so the question we're going to ask in this session is, are there good scientific reasons to reject or at least strongly question evolution? And I think that the answer to that is yes. So what we will talk about in this session is we'll talk about two different types of problems. Okay, there are evidence problems and those are what I would call open scientific questions. These are things that if you got an evolutionist in a room without their friends around them, <laughs> they would admit and sometimes many of them have made this in public, so I'm sort of teasing. They would admit that these are open scientific problems. So evolutionists would agree, I think, that there are some things that they have to figure out. Like I said earlier in the class, every scientific theory has open questions. A lot of scientists, they're very honest about that, and they'll agree that there are some evidence problems. The methodological problems that I'll bring up most evolutionists would reject these. They would say these are not problems. So I just want to distinguish between those two types of problems because for some of us, all these will be powerful objections to evolution. But to a scientist, especially one that studies evolution, the first two are really the only ones that they're going to give credibility to. So I recognize that in my audience, there may be people who only think that the evidential problems are problems. They may think that the methodological problems aren't really big deals at all, or that my perspective on them is flawed for some reason. And a couple of these methodological problems I'll add are especially controversial, and we'll get to that when we get there. Then the final question we'll ask ourselves briefly is, what's the best explanation of the evidence? Is it evolution or is it design? 
and I'm only going to be able to briefly handle that. So that's going to be your homework <laughs> beyond the session is to think about that question. So there are several major open problems in the theory of evolution, and we're going to talk about two of them. There are more, but these are two big ones. The first one is the Cambrian explosion, and the second one is mutations. So we'll start with the Cambrian explosion. Much of the fossil record could be viewed in a light that's favorable to evolution. But the Cambrian explosion poses a really big problem for evolutionary theory. And to just give a little bit of a run-up before I explain what the Cambrian explosion is, the theory of evolution at its foundation requires slow changes over time, slow changes over a long period of time. And eventually, as random mutations occur and some get selected naturally because they're better for survivability and because higher higher chances of procreating if you survive longer and that sort of thing. So you have slow changes accumulating over a long period of time. That's how the theory of evolution works. The problem is the Cambrian explosion was a big change in a short period of time. So what is the Cambrian explosion? Well, evolution would predict that species, the tree of life, we saw the tree of life before, that species diverge, and eventually that leads to new genera, new families, new orders, classes, and then phyla. Those are different layers of biological classification. But the problem with the Cambrian explosion is that many of the animal phyla and many major classes underneath those phyla appear fully formed in the Cambrian period, which is 10 or 20 million years long, something like that, uh, maybe 30 million years long. It, does, it seems like that's a really long period of time, and geologically, from our perspective, that seems like a long period of time. Geologically, that is a very short period of time, and it, I think I read somewhere that it's like one three hundredth of the time that evolution would expect that amount of speciation to occur. So you're talking about something that happened 300 times faster than what the theory of evolution would suggest. That's a big problem. That's a really big problem. One of the really good resources, if you want to understand more about the scientific objections uh, to evolution from a Christian perspective, come from the book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Darwinism and Intelligent Design, which was written by Jonathan Wells. And Jonathan Wells holds a PhD in biology, I think it is, from Cal Berkeley. And then he also has a PhD in theology from Yale. So he is a very well-educated person, and he's very involved in the intelligent design movement. And this is what he says on page 16 of that book about the Cambrian explosion and about some scientists who are avid evolutionists who even acknowledge that the Cambrian explosion is a big deal. So here's what, what the quote is. It says, according to modern paleontologists, James Valentine, Stanley Aramick, Philip Signor, and Peter Sadler, the appearance of the major animal phyla near the beginning of the Cambrian is, quote, the single most spectacular phenomenon evident in the fossil record, end quote. Now these four gentlemen are all staunch evolutionists. So despite the Cambrian explosion, they still believe in evolution, but they are willing to admit 
that this is, and they use the term, spectacular phenomenon. Now, if you're a scientist using the term spectacular phenomenon, that should raise some red flags. <laughs> they shouldn't believe in spectacular phenomenon, right? The natural world should exist without spectacular phenomenon. Before 20, 30, 40 years ago, as the evidence for the Cambrian explosion was coming out, some scientists suggested a while back that pre-Cambrian organisms might have been too delicate, maybe they're too small, something like that, to make good fossils. So in other words, it's possible that the evidence just doesn't exist, but there was this evolution during the pre-Cambrian periods, and that we're just missing the evidence. But recent scientific discoveries have shown that that's not true, that, that that cannot be the explanation for it. Because scientists, for example, have found really good fossils of Cambrian period uh, animals that are small and soft tissue. So check off both those boxes, small and soft tissue. So uh, this cannot explain what happened with the Cambrian explosion. So as of right now, the Cambrian explosion is an open question. In evolutionary theory, as far as I'm aware, there is no good answer for it. Several answers have been proposed, but none of them have taken particular hold to the point where the scientific community has come forward and said, hey, we've solved this. Now, does this mean that they won't come up with something? No. Uh, at some point, we may actually have a very good explanation for the Cambrian explosion from evolutionary theory. And that's why none of this stuff you know, again, fine-tuning we talked about, none of this stuff is direct evidence for God's existence. We, don't, we can't view it that way. That's a God of the gaps kind of an argument. And we don't want to put our uh, belief system on that kind of a shaky ground. But it does lead us to ask, I think, the question, what's the best explanation for the evidence? What is the best explanation? So if the best explanation is, does it seem to be evolutionary theory, is there a way for intelligent design science and things like that to do a better job of explaining the evidence? And that's the question that we're discussing. Now, mutations. Mutations are the other concern that we have that I would consider an open problem in evolution. Mutations are considered incredibly important to the evolutionary framework. So remember from prior sessions, we talked about how populations get split up, random mutations over time, natural selection, and eventually you end up with speciation. Those two population of toms, one might have gotten longer hair, one might have gotten shorter hair, narrower snout, wider snout, those types of differences. And eventually over time, we would observe them as two different species possibly. And that process is called speciation. The driving mechanism behind that, according to evolutionary theory, is random mutations. That is the current framework that most evolutionists work with. There are evolutionists that have challenged this and have offered alternate frameworks. I'm sort of setting those to the side right now because those are, as of right now, minority views. But recent studies on mutations and our understanding of mutations scientifically as of this moment are really challenging to this. And just to take a step back for a moment, what this would mean is evolution as a theory could do a fairly good job of explaining the fossil record, for example, but they couldn't explain the mechanism of how one species eventually evolves into another species. And if you don't have a mechanism, I really wonder scientifically if you have a viable theory. <laughs> and a lot of people have asked that same question. 
So we're going to meet our next intelligent design proponent. His name is Michael Behe. He is a professional biochemist. He's a professor, has a PhD, and he's written several books. We're going to discuss a couple of his, this is an article that he wrote, and we're going to discuss a book that he wrote later in the session. Uh, but what he says about mutations in God is Great, God is Good, the essay is titled God and Evolution. He says, quote, rather than mutations building up molecular machinery, improving an organism relentlessly, many mutations actually destroyed parts of a creature's DNA or rendered some of the molecular machinery it coded for ineffective. It turns out that some of the mutations which break things can sometimes have a salutary effect. So here's the thing. What he's saying is, the vast majority of mutations that we observe in modern genetics, modern biochemistry, the vast majority of them break things. So if you think about it, what, what that means is it breaks something, and then it breaks another thing, and then it breaks another thing, and somehow breaking three or four or five things in a row would somehow lead, evolution thinks, to a better organism eventually, or a stronger, more viable candidate. And what we actually observe is that that's not true. That things that have multiple mutations like that, as you can imagine, if multiple things get broken, they're less viable. So this is a huge issue. So mutations that break genes can have a positive effect. For example, if a child receives the gene for sickle cell anemia from one parent, but not from the other, that child will experience more resistance to malaria. So you think about in third world countries, it'd be helpful to have sickle cell anemia on one side and ha not have it on the other side, possibly, right? The problem is, what happens when you get both sickle cell anemia? Now you have a debilitating disease. So again, mutations that we observe, the vast majority of them break things. And when they break things, sometimes in the short term, there are positive effects. And that's why they get passed on. But in the long term, it leads to more problems. So here's another example. Evolutionist Richard Lenski and his team observed a situation in bacteria where two successive mutations improved the survivability of the bacteria. We're going to talk a little bit more about this experiment in, later in this session. But I just want to focus on the mutation piece of it here. Then we'll talk about the successive mutations piece of it later. Uh, there is one problem. This is a long quote from the same essay, God and Evolution. The first mutations to help were the breaking of genes. The bacteria rapidly lost the ability to make the sugar ribose, a component of RNA. For some reason, that helped the mutant bacteria compete against non-mutants. A handful of other genes involved in metabolism were also deleted. Some bacteria had their ability to repair DNA, badly damaged. Most bacteria lost the ability to metabolize the sugar maltose. The mutations were incoherent, scattered in different genes, with no recognizable theme among them. They were not in the process of building any new system in the cell. They simply took advantage of opportunities that helped them grow faster in their current milieu. This is what random mutation does, even when it helps. So... This was an experiment where they saw two successive mutations and the two successive mutations did build something that made the bacteria more viable. The problem is it was short-term gain for long-term pain. 
And remember, this is also a laboratory controlled experiment. This is not something we observed in the wild, okay? So there's some interesting questions we can ask about that too. So anyway, where we leave the idea of mutations is if, and I've seen the statistic before, that one out of a thousand mutations are creative in nature, the other 999 approximately are destructive in nature. So if one out of a thousand or so are productive and the other 999 out of a thousand break things, how do you get one, two, three, four, five, six mutations stacked in a row in one species, in one generation, and then you have to find another mate that has exactly those same mutations to have a viable candidate for the next generation? It seems to me like there's a really big problem here with evolutionary theory and something that needs to be addressed. And again, I'm not saying that scientists aren't aware of this. They are aware of this. I'm also not saying that this destroys evolution single-handedly. I don't think it does. I think it leads us to ask the question, what's the better explanation of the evidence? Now, we're going to talk briefly about four methodological problems in the theory of evolution. These are just four examples. There are others. The first one is how scientists over time and how science educators over time have communicated the theory of evolution. There's misleading evidence for evolution that has been communicated over the years. And I think that shows maybe an acknowledgement that there's some weakness in the evidence for evolution, possibly. We get to Behe's understanding of irreducible complexity, which is incredibly controversial. We'll get to the fossil record, and then we'll ask questions about the origin of life. First, about misleading evidence for evolution. We're going to talk about two specific pieces of, of evidence that have been duplicated over time and still are in science textbooks to this day, even though people know that they're fabricated or wrong. The first of those is Haeckel's embryos. The idea behind Haeckel's embryos was the theory was that as, for example, as a human fetus goes through the stages of development inside the womb, that in essence, that progression is like the progression of, that we took as evolving animals. So the idea was, well, if human embryos go through that evolutionary kind of view throughout the development of the fetus, that other animals do too. And if evolution is true, then maybe everything would look the same going through this process of embryonic development over time. And so here on the right is a drawing of, and it's hard to see the animals at the bottom, but it's fish, salamander, tortoise, chick, hog, cat, rabbit, human. And as you can see, there's been a great emphasis on lining up different stages of development and showing that, hey, look, all these animals are going through the stages of single cell organism to multiple cellular organism to blah, 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 and that we can see this development over time and that they're going through this sort of time machine of evolutionary advancement inside the womb. The big problem with this is they're fake. These are fabricated. There, is, there aren't these kinds of similarities at really any level in embryonic development across these animals. And yet, you'll see these in some scientific textbooks explaining evolution, even though we know that they're wrong. Another example of this is Stanley Miller's experiment, 1953. He was trying to solve the origin of life problem, which again, this is related to evolution, but not exactly evolution. But it is an important question to consider with evolution sort of in, in tow. Miller used an atmosphere of hydrogen, methane, ammonia, and water vapor. And voila, he added lightning, you know, boom, 
lightning, and life appeared. You know, proteins and so on appeared. And it looks like you could have a working abiogenesis theory. Now, if you haven't heard of Stanley Miller and you took a college biology class, you might wonder, why didn't I hear about this? Well, the reason is because the atmosphere was not the scientifically accepted atmosphere for early Earth. He used an atmosphere that he knew would get life. If you put the atmosphere that scientists actually believe uh, was in existence in the early Earth, you also get organic molecules. You get cyanide and formaldehyde. And if you know much about cyanide and formaldehyde, they are toxic to life. So it's not like you could just combine the elements of the early atmosphere in a lightning strike and get life. That's why abiogenesis is still a very open question in modern uh, astrobiology. But sometimes people will mention Miller and say, hey, look, you can, get, you can mix this stuff together in a lab and throw lightning in there and get life. Well, only if you use an atmosphere that's finely tuned for life and is not likely to have been the original atmosphere of the Earth. So there you go. Our next objection is irreducible complexity. And as I've mentioned, we're going to be talking about Michael Behe's book from 1996, originally published in 96. He put out a second edition about 10 years later called Darwin's Black Box. We'll be discussing it at length here in this session. But I uh, just want to, again, briefly caveat this by saying you should do your research on this. This is highly controversial stuff. Evolutionists have argued at length about why they think Behe's argument is wrong, and I don't have time to give really a fully orbs both sides view of this particular piece of evidence, so I'm asking you to do the homework for yourself. <laughs> and I can do that because I'm running this class, so. <laughs> All right, so this is the, the foundation of Behe's argument comes from Charles Darwin himself on the origin of species. The quote is, from Darwin is, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have formed by numerous successive slight modifications my theory would absolutely break down. So what B, he says, is he believes that there are many examples that violate Darwin's principle. And he calls these things irreducibly complex machines. He uses the term machines. So we will also use that term at times. This is what he says on page 39. He says, an irreducibly complex system is a single system which is composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function and where the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. So what Behe uses as an example from modern life is the idea of a mousetrap. That's what he thinks of as a very basic, irreducibly complex system. And the question you have to ask yourself is, could a mousetrap work without the hammer, the spring, or the platform? If you take the hammer away, can it still function? If you take the spring away, can it still function? If you take the platform away, can it still function? Nope, so you need all three things, and you have to have them all working together, or else you don't have a mousetrap. You're not gonna catch any mice. So the question is, can we find systems like this in our bodies, in the living uh, things around us? And if so, the question would be, how could evolution explain that? So Behe gives many examples in his book of systems that from a biochemical perspective are irreducibly complex. And the two that I'll mention here are blood clotting and bacterial flagellum. Uh, he points out in his book that there are many things that have to take place for these systems to work. 
And if you take even one thing away, the whole system just falls apart. Now, like I said, this is controversial. I'm going to briefly give some objections to it, but I, again, I want you to do homework on it. Collins, our friend Francis Collins, who's our buddy, he's a Christian, he says that most of Behe's examples may have plausible solutions in the future. He, in other words, he thinks that over time our understanding of genetics and biochemistry will advance and we'll be able to see like protein sequences and certain things that would give the ability for these irreducibly complex systems to come out of an evolutionary kind of a framework. So Collins says, hey, let's wait on the science, let's see if they solve it in the future. Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, who's an atheist, famous zoologist, argues that there is not an all-or-nothing nature to some of the examples that B he gives. So in other words, 51% of a wing is better than 50% of a wing. You can fly a little bit better with 51% of a wing. And so that's Dawkins' argument. Take that for what it is. Think about it yourself. We saw Lenski's experiment earlier showed the bacteria could see uh, successive mutations. The first mutation didn't do anything. The second mutation, when paired with the first, did allow the bacteria to survive better in their current environment. That was a two-step machine. So Lenski, in a lab, actually did produce a two-step machine. The problem that we saw with this earlier was it was short-term gain for long-term pain. So again, I still think that there's some interesting things to think about with irreducible complexity and with Behe's argument. But like I said, it's controversial. There's lots of pros and cons on both sides. What about the fossil record? It is perhaps the only place where we can see speciation, see species change over time because we have you know, fossils like this and then we see intermediate species and we see more adva you know, advanced species and, and we see more like our modern forms, for example. But what Jonathan Wells does in his book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Darwinism and Intelligent Design, is he challenges the fossil record. And I'm going to give you a sort of dark example that he gives in his book. Uh, so please don't get mad at me for giving a dark example here. I think, it's, I think it's helpful. Imagine you dig in your backyard and you find two skeletons. Like I said, this is a dark example. <laughs> no one would want to do this. But imagine we carbon date them both to 30 years ago. You know, we date them the same dating. One is adult size, the other is half of that. Can you assume a familial relationship between these two sets of bones? Would you, if you were investigating a potential cold case homicide or double homicide or whatever, or however you want to view this kind of a situation, whatever happened here, would you just leave it that you found these two sets of bones together, one's bigger, one's smaller, would you just assume mother and son or father and daughter? No, not if you're a forensics expert. What would you do? You'd send those bones in for genetic testing. So we're going to, what Wells does is he applies the same type of critical thinking to the fossil record. Just because two fossil specimens look like they're related does not make them related and actually found several examples of this in science over time, where they thought that they found this missing link, and then they finally got enough evidence to do some genetic testing, and I realized it wasn't the missing link they thought it was. It belonged elsewhere in the timeline. Here's a great example of it. This is Archaeopteryx. The question, here's a uh, rendering of what it sort of looks like or what they think it might have looked like. You know, we don't have any pictures of Archaeopteryx. It lived a long, long time ago. 
Uh, looks sort of scary to me, honestly. I wouldn't want to see it flying around. Uh, so the question is, is it half bird, half reptile? Uh, because at some point, you know, evolutionists believe that reptiles eventually evolved into birds. So does this fit as a missing link? Uh, the answer is no, it doesn't. Uh, the supposed reptilian precursors to this animal are actually found after it in the fossil record. So it doesn't even fit the fossil account of it. Here's a quote from an evolutionist, Denoy, which cited in Strobel, Case for a Creator. He says, we are not even authorized to consider the exceptional case of the Archaeopteryx as a true link. By link, we mean a necessary stage of transition between classes, such as reptiles and birds, or between smaller groups. An animal displaying character the characters involving the two different groups cannot be treated as a true link as long as the intermediary stages have not been found and as long as the mechanisms of the transition remain unknown. And I'll add that that at italicized section is added by me. So I, I think this is incredibly important. Uh, we cannot assume that just because something looks like something else that they're related. We found over time, for example, that Whales and dolphins and uh, sea mammals seem to have evolved from land mammals. That's incredibly sur surprising from an evolutionary perspective. Evolutionists, before we found that genetic evidence, would have said, no, they evolved from fish and other creatures that lived in the sea and always lived in the sea. So we've seen surprising things in the genetic account. And the point of the Archaeopteryx is we've seen surprising things in the fossil record as well, uh, where we think of you know, for years they thought this is the missing link, half reptile, half bird, and it turns out it's not the missing link that they wanted it to be. I want to close on poking a little bit at the origin of life problem. And again, this is not strictly against evolution because evolution starts with life. It assumes life at the very beginning, then it moves forward from that. But I think it is interesting to challenge abiogenesis in conjunction with evolution especially as we weigh the question of design or you know, naturalistic explanations, essentially. Uh, as we weigh those problems, I think origin of life is interesting. And I'm just going to briefly mention two challenges to abiogenesis theories. The first one is the probability of randomly producing a simple protein are astronomically low. We talked about fine-tuning before in astronomy and physics. And we talked about things that were fine-tuned on the nature of like one in 10 to the 123rd power. This type of situation of randomly producing a simple protein is on the same order of improbability. And again, I don't, we don't have time to go into all the details, but you, know, you should definitely do some reading. Um, I recommend uh, Stephen Meyer on this. Stephen Meyer is an uh, intelligent design scholar who's written a number of books that address this exact problem from the uh, biochemistry perspective. And he just has some fantastic essays in several books, and he has several books out uh, on this exact subject. So, and he's also, I think, interviewed by Strobel in Case for a Creator talking about these issues. So there's many ways to engage with Stephen Meyer's work on this particular problem with the origin of life, highly recommend you go out and do that. Uh, the other issue is no natural selection is available before life begins. So a lot of times these abiogenesis theories think, well, maybe if you could randomly produce a protein, that eventually natural selection could get in there and proteins could evolve, and then eventually you get to the first organism. 
The problem is they've actually shown that that's impossible, that in, it, no natural selection processes and mutations can work. Even if you assume you get an initial protein or two, the, the idea that you could eventually end up uh, naturally selecting in the, uh, before life exists just doesn't work biochemically. So the two, two big objections to current abiogenesis theories and why they're having such a hard time with that. Richard Dawkins, I'll just mention this briefly, actually proposed that life on Earth was seeded by extraterrestrial life. That is Dawkins' view, is that uh, life came from another planet and seeded our planet with life. That is Richard Dawkins, atheist, zoologist, world-class scholar. He believes that life was seeded by aliens. Okay? And he adds, those aliens also evolved according to Darwinian principles. So all he does is he pushes back the problem one more layer. Where did those aliens come from? Well, Dawkins doesn't have an answer for that. So, we close with our question, evolution or design? What is the best conclusion given the evidence? Now, again, I don't think this has to be either or if you're a Christian. We've talked about that before. I just want to mention that again. If we believe in evolution, it still could be consistent with God-designed life and his guidance through the fossil record. God could have helped along with the Cambrian explosion. God could have blah, 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 blah. There's ways of getting around some of these problems. And still believing in evolution like Francis Collins does. Francis Collins believes that God shaped things and that it looks to us like evolution. That as we look at the record, it just looks like evolution. That, that was the mechanism that God used to get us where we are today. That's what Francis Collins believes. That's one option. If we don't believe in evolution, there is strong evidence for design in the living beings around us. How our eyes work, how our bodies work, nature around us. You just look around, all the crazy, amazing things that exist in the world around us. There's evidence for design, I believe, all over the place. Either way, I propose that scientific atheism does not do the best job of explaining the evidence. And I've given you some scientific reasons why in this particular session. And we talked a little bit about the evidence for a view of, of scientific beginnings of the universe in the fine-tuning section and saw how improbable that theory is as well. So what we're left with, having examined the evidence from physics and astronomy and from biochemistry and evolution is, from my perspective, it's incredibly improbable to believe that we're here by chance, that there's some sort of multiverse and that somehow we just won the lottery with everything we see around us. In fact, I would propose that whether we believe in evolution or not, that there is strong evidence for God's intervention in the fossil record, in biochemistry, in just the way that life flat out exists. We see design everywhere around us. Well, this brings this episode to a close. What'd you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 471, Scientific Objections to Evolution, and leave your feedback there. Now, today's episode rounds out a three-part mini-series on evolution and in the first one, Will talked about just the basic case for evolution, what it is. In the second one, he looked at how evolutionary thought is interpreted from within different frameworks, different perspectives, young earth creationism, old earth creationism, gap theory, so on and so forth. And then in this one today, he was looking at uh, some of the scientific issues that personally sway him against believing in evolution and embracing it. And we thought it would be good to have some 
conversation with somebody that really did believe in evolution, a Christian in particular that really did believe in evolution. And so we've invited Sam Tiedemann to have a conversation with us about the subject of evolution. And uh, that conversation, if you're listening to this relatively close to the time when I'm putting it out, that conversation is going to be on Friday, uh, Black Friday, in fact, the Friday after Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, by the way, for those of you in the United States. But uh, that Friday, we're going to do a YouTube conversation, and we'll publish that right away. And in that conversation, we'll hopefully be able to have a better dialogue about a number of these issues, whether scientific or biblical, with evolution. Because I think a lot of us are scratching our heads saying, how in the world can you be a Christian and an evolutionist at the same time? Sam is going to hopefully just explain how that all works, and uh, or maybe he won't, and he'll change his mind. We'll see. Stay tuned for that. Again, that'll only be on YouTube, so take a look at our at the Restitutio YouTube channel for that. We'll catch you next week. If you'd like to contribute to Restitutio, especially as we come to the end of the year here, we certainly would appreciate that. We'll see you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.